Um, and we are going to go ahead and just jump right into Come Follow Me. So one of the things that I really like is it starts off, you know, in like the little introduction that it gives you for each, each week. It starts off saying, in most situations, 99 out of 100 would be considered excellent. So if I gave a test to my kids at school and they got a 99 out of 100, they would be like, yes, that is awesome. Like, I'm doing so good. But when it comes to fostering a love of Christ in our brothers and sisters, we want to make sure that we've got a hundred of a hundred, right? And so we want to search for that one that is missing. And it talks about, in a lot of these different parables this week, it talks about the joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. And I think sometimes we have a tendency to step back and say, well, what about the ninety and nine people that were that did good? Like, they don't get any recognition. Like, you're just paying attention to the sinner. And it took me a long time to realize that, no, we are all that sinner. Like, there is no 90 and 9. Like, there's there's no 90 and 9 hanging out there because no one's perfect. We all need Christ. We are all that sheep. At some point in our life, we are all that sheep that's wandered off. Even that 1% is important. So I like that in the little introduction this week. All right, first up, we are going to be talking about parables. And this is from Luke 12, 14, and 16. And it says, I should set my heart on eternally important things rather than on the things of this world. It says, in these chapters in Luke, the Savior teaches several parables that can help us lift our sights beyond the worldly to the eternal. Some of the parables are listed here. How would you summarize the message of each? What do you think the Lord is telling you? And the parables it lists are the foolish rich man, the great supper, the prodigal son, the unjust steward, and the rich man and Lazarus. Okay, so we're going to jump into the parable of the foolish rich man. This can be found in Luke 12, 13 through 21. And so why do we call him foolish? Well, Jesus is out there teaching, and he's teaching about several different things. Hypocrisy, he's telling people about, you know, where you put your treasure. He's doing the whole sparrows thing. The very hairs of your head are numbered. And he's talking all about this. He's saying, when you go into the synagogues and the magistrates, take no thought for what you shall say, for the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what you ought to say. And then this guy stands up and is like, whoa, Jesus. Um, so I know you're talking and stuff, but just like stop for a moment and let's talk about my personal problem. Like I've got this brother over here and he will not divide his inheritance with me. And you need to tell him that he has to divide his inheritance with me. Right? And so everybody's like, what? And Jesus turns to him and says, man, who has made me a judge or divider over you? And then he warns the guy, and he says, Take heed, and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth. And so he's like, Whoa, dude, slow your roll. Let's talk about this for a moment. And so he takes this interruption, which, you know, could normally totally take an entire lecture off track. But he takes this interruption, and he kind of rolls with it, and he turns it into a parable. And that's where we get the parable of the foolish rich man. And so we start here in 16, and it says... He spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And so, first of all, the first thing we notice here in this verse, the guy is working the ground, obviously, but it's the ground that's really doing a lot of the work. The ground is giving him the blessings, right? So that's a lot of times in our lives, like, yeah, we'll put the work in and stuff, but the blessings are given to us from God. We don't necessarily qualify for those blessings. We are just blessed with them through our love of our Heavenly Father. So he has all these blessings. He says fruits, right? And he says, I have so many fruits. I don't have enough room to put all my fruits somewhere. So where will I bestow my fruits? And he says, I'll pull down my barns and build greater ones and I'll store all my fruits and all my goods in these greater barns. And then he says, I will say to my soul, soul, 
Thou hast much good slides up for many years. Take thine ease and eat, drink, and be merry. So work all these different years, gather up all these different stuff, put it into storage, and then just have the easy life. Take the easy life, right? And then in 20 it says, But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall these things be which thou hast provided? If we go back into 18, we see where he says, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. That is a lot of like possession in those different verses. Like this is a lot of my, my, I, I did this. And it's not recognizing God in the picture, right? And then God does come and say, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Where will the, where will this stuff go? What, what does this stuff even matter? And the answer is it doesn't matter. This man may have seemed like a great success to the world, but to God, he was a fool. And that's why he calls him fool because he wasn't placing his sights and his emphasis on the things of God. He was placing it on the things of man. Not even all the stuff that he had, but then he was just going to play around and have a life of leisure and not really serve God. And so there's a lesson to be learned there that where we need to place our priorities and the things we need to put our sights on need to be from God. And then also we need to realize that everything comes from God. We didn't do that. We were allowed to do that by God. God blessed us with whatever it is that we did, and it's all from him. And so I think that's what I got out of that parable. Okay, up next is the parable of the Great Supper. We see this in Luke 14, 12 through 24. And this is where he's talking to the crowd, and he's saying, you know, when you have a feast, a dinner party, or whatever, he says, Call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and recompense be made to thee. So this sounds like he's saying, when you have a party, don't invite your friends and family and neighbors, because they'll just have a party back, or they'll give you gifts to repay you for the party, or whatever. And that sounds strange. But when you look a little bit deeper into it, I think what he is saying here is he's saying, don't be exclusive. Don't exclude people from the party or the feast or whatever it is that you're having. When I was in Young Women's, and when I know when one of my sisters was in Young Women's, there were serious issues with cliques in our Young Women's group. And I'm ashamed to say I was probably one of the biggest instigators of that. You know, and I look back now, and I didn't really see it at the time. I just thought I was having fun with my friends, but I think that there were people that I could have included a little bit better in that fun that I was having with my friends. And so I think it's saying be aware of the people who may not feel as included in the fun that you're having and invite them in. Um, don't just leave them out. Because if you are trying to have this big dinner to impress people or, you know, just to hang out with your friends, watch out for the others who are being excluded, Um, especially I would say at church. Church is a place where I think it's very easy just to stick to your friends because that's where we're comfortable. And, you know, we all go to church and we all sit in the same little pews. We all talk to our little pew neighbors and we all kind of have these little groups that we've grown comfortable in for years and years and years. And maybe there's a new family in the ward and we don't know them as well, but hey, they're sitting in a you all the way across the chapel. I'm not going to get up and go talk to them. Like, you know, maybe get out of that little circle and go talk to people who feel maybe excluded, right? That was the first part of that parable. Then it goes on and it says, you know, the man decided to throw a feast and he invited all his friends and neighbors and kinsmen or whatever. And none of them came. They all had excuses. They were all busy. I've got to do this and I've got to go wash my hair, whatever it was. I don't know. But they all had excuses. And so then he went out and he invited the halt and the lame and 
the sick and the poor, and he invited them to the feast. And to me, I really see this kind of representing Jesus' ministry. Um, He's come to the children of Israel, and he's given them his gospel and saying, Hey guys, here I am. Um, I'm the Messiah. I'm here to save you in your sins. And they're kind of like, nah, like I need to go do this. And even in some cases, like the Pharisees, they're actively plotting against him, right? And so he's saying, you know what? I was going to give you this really great gift of like, you know, being near me and hearing my gospel and stuff like that. But you know what? You don't want it. So um, I'm going to go out and I'm going to find the spiritually poor and the spiritually lame and the spiritually like halt. And I'm going to go teach them instead. And so he goes and he finds, you know, the people who they consider not very good in society. You know, the sinners, the publicans, whoever it is. And that's who he teaches his gospel to. That's who he gives the great feast to of his gospel and his goodness. And so that's what I got from that parable. Okay, up next is the prodigal son. The prodigal son that we see in Luke 15, 11 through 32. And ooh, for a long time, I had issues with the prodigal son. And I'm going to tell you why. Um, I'm the oldest of five kids. And as the oldest, I think I might have been better behaved than the rest of my siblings. And I think my siblings would all agree with this. Um, I felt like I was kind of held to a higher standard of behavior. I had to set the good example. I had to be the one to watch over the little siblings and take care of them. And I always felt like I was like trying to be like the perfect older sister. And so I would go in and I'd read the story of the prodigal son. And it would remind me of all the times when like my sisters or my little brother would act up and act crazy, but then still get the dessert or they'd get whatever, you know, everybody else got too. And I would be really, really upset. And so for a long time, the parable of the prodigal son really bothered me because I'm like, what? The oldest son is literally getting like left out in the cold. Like the younger son went and he screwed everything up and then he came back and everyone's having like this party and the older son gets no recognition whatsoever and he doesn't get any of this stuff. And I I really did not like this parable for a long time in case you can't tell. Like it really upset me. And it wasn't until recently that I learned, you know what? We are all that lost son. None of us are the older son. We have all sinned, and when we sin, we take our inheritance from the Lord, and we spoil it, and we go away from him, and then when we repent and we come back to him is when he has, like, this big, exciting, like, happiness. So why even have this, the older son in the, in the parable? Well, I think also there are those of us in the church who have been there all along and we're just like the steady, you know, there's like the same 10 people in every ward that you just know are going to be there to help. Or you know you can call them to a position and they will just take it and they'll be great and they'll run with it, right? I think for those people, the reward that they have had is they've had the gospel with them all along. They've had the spirit with them all along. The son had his father with him all along. Whereas the other son was out, you know, I think back to the seminary video we saw of this, like back when I was in the seminary, it was like the nineties and there was like this kid, you know, the prodigal son that like left his father and he ended up on like the mean city streets of like a downtown urban area and he had like the long hair the Richard Marks hair and you know there was like the synthesizer music in the background like you know I mean it was like you know oh it was so cheesy but so yeah he's having a hard time with his Richard Marks hair and the synthesizer music in the background in the urban city that's where the prodigal son is and you know he's drinking out of a bottle or something I don't know So he had that hard time, whereas, you know, the older son is still there with his father, and he's still being faithful to his father, and he's still going to inherit everything his father has. The prodigal son gets over his Richard Marks haircut and comes back, and he again will also inherit all that the father has. 
And of course, this would not be a complete episode of The Savior Said without a quote from Jeffrey R. Holland. You know, I gotta drop some in there. So the first one is about the younger brother. Okay, and Jeffrey R. Holland, this is from his talk, The Other Prodigal, which I really recommend you go read, especially if you've had issues with Parable of the Prodigal Son, like I did. It really helped change my heart. But Jeffrey R. Holland says, The tender image of this boy's anxious, faithful father running to meet him and showering him with kisses is one of the most moving and compassionate scenes in all of Holy Writ. It tells every child of God, wayward or otherwise, how much God wants us back in the protection of his arms. So even if we are like the older son, God still wants us in his protection and in his arms. He will still come and like hug us and love us just as much as he loved that other son, just as much as he did. He loves all of his children equally and also perfectly and in the way that they need it. If you, like me, sympathize with the older brother a little bit, here is what Jeffrey R. Holland has to say about that. The son is not so much angry that the other has come home as he is angry that his parents are so happy about it. Okay, and so this made me really think, like, when I read this parable, what am I upset about? Um, I'm upset that, like, I'm trying to do the right thing, and my younger sibling, who has done the wrong thing, is now getting all the attention, right? And so, going back to Jeffrey R. Holland, he says, Feeling unappreciated, and perhaps more than a little self-pity, this dutiful son and he is wonderfully dutiful, forgets that for a moment he has never had to know the filth or despair, this is me saying, the Richard Marks haircut and the synthesizer music, right? The fear or self-loathing. He forgets for a moment that every cow on the ranch is already his, and so are all the robes in the closet and every ring in the drawer. He forgets for a moment that his faithfulness has been and always will be rewarded. He has yet to come to the compassion and mercy, the charitable breadth of vision, to see that this is not a rival returning. It is his brother. And that's where really my focus had to shift is instead of seeing a sibling as a rival for my parents' attention, it's seeing them as, you know, they're my brother or they're my sister or, you know, in the church, they're not a rival for God's attention. God can give equal attention to every one of his children. We rejoice over them coming back because they are our brothers and they are sisters. We have compassion and mercy on them, right? Because when we come back, we get compassion and mercy from our Savior. Jeffrey R. Holland continues, Certainly this younger brother had been a prisoner, a prisoner of sin, stupidity, and a pigsty. But the older brother lives in some confinement, too. He has, as yet, been unable to break out of the prison himself. He is haunted by the green-eyed monster of jealousy. And that, to me, was really interesting because, you know, you obviously, once Jeffrey R. Holland lays it out like that, you can totally see the green-eyed monster of jealousy there. But we go into a lot of the other parables, and a lot of them are about jealousy, about covetousness, is the word that we see thrown around a lot. I mean, the rich, foolish man, before that whole starts, that whole little scene where the guy's, like, interrupting Jesus, being like, hey, you know, tell my brother, give me my inheritance. Um, And Jesus tells him, beware of covetousness. A lot of these parables are all about being jealous of others and how jealous and envying causes all kinds of strife. The older son, yeah, he may have been dutiful and he may have been there the whole time, but is he in his own confinement of jealousy and anger? Yeah, he is. You know, I don't know. It made me think a lot, but reading this week, especially Jeffrey R. Holland's comments have really helped helped change my heart about it. So I hope that maybe that helped you. I don't know that it it was very long and rambling and I'm so sorry. I'm going to see if I can go find that seminary video of like the synthesizer music and the Richard Marks haircut so you guys can see how truly terrible it was and (laughs) just laugh at the amazingness. Okay, that was the parable of the prodigal son. 
Okay, so up next we have the parable of the unjust steward, and this parable is interesting.、Um, it's probably, to me, one of the more difficult parables I think for us to understand, and yeah, you know, for me to understand at least. I have a hard time with it.、Um, really, kind of going in and being like, okay, so. This guy's being like kind of cheaty and not necessarily good, but Jesus is using him kind of as a good figure, and、um, so I kind of struggle with this parable a lot. But I went to the New Testament Seminary Manual because, again, it would not be an episode of the Savior Said without me going to the New Testament Seminary Teacher Manual because it's got good stuff. Okay, so we've got this unjust steward who's being called an accounting of, you know. What he's done with all the guy's stuff, right? So he's managing the guy's finances or whatever, and the guy's like, "Hey, where's all my money? I need to, I need you to give me accounting for like the way you've spent my money." And the steward is like, "Oh no, I've done a bad job. I've not been a good manager, and he's gonna find out, and I'm gonna be in trouble. And what am I gonna do? I can't do manual labor. I don't want to go beg on the street. Like I, this is not good. So I'm gonna be really smart." And I'm going to go to all the people who owe my boss money, and I'm going to tell them if they can go ahead and pay like half of it now, then my boss will be happy because he'll get like half of it back now instead of having to wait on it. And then also the people who I am getting the stuff from, then they'll be like, oh well, what a cool guy! He kind of came and helped helped us out a little bit. And so you know, I'm networking with those people too. So maybe when I get you know chucked out on the street, I'll have some friends that can help me out. And there's all that going on. Okay, so in the Seminary teacher manual. They've got a quote from Elder James E. Talmage, and this is what he says: Our Lord's purpose was to show the contrast between care and thoughtfulness, devotion of men engaged in the money-making affairs of the earth, and the half-hearted ways of many who are professedly striving after spiritual riches. And so, I think it's important to note too that at the beginning of this chapter, we see a switch. He's no longer talking to the multitude here. He is actually talking to his disciples. There seems to be a group of Pharisees, kind of like lurking nearby somewhere. But、um, mostly, it's to his disciples that he's talking about this. And so he's saying, like, look how hard this guy wheeled and dealed to kind of get the earthly riches under control and to you know keep his job and stuff like that. How hard are we working to keep our jobs and our spiritual riches with our Father in heaven? Are we working nearly that hard? Are we putting our brain power into the things that we can do to help? You know, glorify God and to help bring us closer to God. Are we using our time and our talents to help serve God and build His kingdom the same way we would with our job? Honestly, it's one of the reasons why I picked up this podcast and started doing this podcast because I was like, well, I think maybe I'm a little talented in the way I teach and stuff like that, and I know I apply it all the time when I teach. I apply that talent to teaching. But I'm like, have I really used that talent well to teach people about God and about Jesus? And I was like, well, maybe you know, doing this little podcast will be good for me because it'll really make me think about the scriptures and really help me deal, delve deep down into my testimony and stuff like that. And I'm like, maybe you know, like ten, fifteen people maybe will listen. And、um, I was like, and then you know, I can edify them somehow, some way. That was kind of what I was thinking I was going to do with this podcast. So I hope that that was part. Of making me a just steward instead of an unjust steward, but going back to James E. Talmage, taking a lesson even from the dishonest and evil, and this is my whole issue with the whole parable. So I was like, this guy was not good. But taking a lesson from the dishonest and evil, if they are so prudent as to provide for the only future that they think of, how much more should you, who believe in an eternal future, provide therefore? 
emulate the unjust steward and the lovers of mammon, which is like worldly stuff, right? Not in their dishonesty, their cupidity, which is like selfish greed, and miserly hoarding of their wealth, that is at best transitory and temporary, but in their zeal, their forethought, and their provision for the future, okay? So our zeal for Christ, the forethought and provision for the future after this world, that's what this parable meant to me. All right, the next parable is the rich man and Lazarus. Here we go, and this is in Luke 16, 19 through 31. Okay, so let's set the scene up a little bit, because this also has a little, I guess, introduction to it, um, like we had for the foolish rich man. But right here, so Jesus is talking to his disciples, and there's like this little group of Pharisees listening to somehow. 14 says, And the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided him. And there's that covetous word again. We're talking a lot about jealousy. So they were jealous of him, maybe because the people were listening to him, maybe because he actually sounds like really smart. They were just repeating what they'd heard their whole lives. And he tells them, you know, you are those who justify yourselves before men. God knoweth your hearts and what is in in them, and you are an abomination in the sight of God. So he knows that the Pharisees are putting on this front where inside they're really kind of hollow and evil not good. If we go back to the seminary teacher manual, they've got a really good way to explain this. They say the Pharisees claimed that the law of Moses and other prophetic scripture in the Old Testament served as their law, and they therefore rejected Jesus as their judge. Jesus explained that the law of Moses and the prophets had testified of him. He questions the Pharisees for denying what had been written and and rebuked them for perverting the right way. To help the Pharisees, whose hearts were set on worldly riches and power, to understand their behavior and the consequences of it, the Savior likened them to the rich man in the parable in the parable recorded in Luke 16, 19 through 31. And that's where we get the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Okay. What we've got here is we have a rich man and we have a beggar named Lazarus. And I have not ever been able to find out why this beggar was named Lazarus. And it seems interesting to me that it's paired up with the story of Lazarus, like in this week's reading. So if anyone out there knows why the beggar is named Lazarus in this story, like I would love to hear that because I am like endlessly curious about this. So if you know why the beggar's named Lazarus, let me know. Shoot me an email. Talk to me on Facebook, something. I don't know. Okay, so there's a certain rich man. He's clothed in purple and fine linen. So we know purple was very expensive. It was the color of royalty, right? And he fared sumptuously every day. So he ate a lot of really good food, right? And then there's a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate. And Lazarus was full of sores. And he just wanted to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's tables. And then the dogs came and licked his sores. Like, Ew, gross, right? But then he died. And he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. So that's like, you know, he's carried by the angels into heaven and into paradise, basically. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, in spirit prison, he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and sees Abraham afar off with Lazarus in his bosom. And so we see here the rich man regretting kind of his life choices, right? And saying, you know, I should have been nicer to Lazarus. I misused my wealth when I was in the world. You know, I used it on myself instead of helping others. And kind of feeling ashamed and sad for his life and the choices that he made. And I really think that's what spirit prison or hell, I guess, is going to be like after this world. Is I think um, we are going to be plagued with guilt for all the different ways that we let our Heavenly Father down. 
Then he starts thinking about his brothers and how his brothers have some similar issues. And he's like, well, I think, you know, they can be changed. They still got a chance. And so this is very much like Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. He's kind of like, send Lazarus as a ghost to go see them and, you know, scare them into repentance, right? And the answer is no. If They have Moses. They have the law. They have the gospel. And if none of that is helping them figure out how to live their lives, then and having Lazarus pop up in their bedroom in the middle of the night is not going to change their lives either. Like, you know, and I guess that's, again, it's what converts doctrine. Doctrine, true doctrine and the spirit converts, not, you know, angels or ghosts or whatever appearing to you in the middle of the night. And so <laughs> that was the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. Some just like just weird parables this week. And I think maybe they're weird because I can't really quite identify with them because of the cultural stuff maybe that's going on. I'm not entirely sure why I had such like a rift with these parables. The only one I really connected with, as you probably could tell, is the prodigal son. I am really connected with that. But the other ones, I'm just kind of like, oh, these are just kind of off, you know, just kind of off kilter. But that was the five parables that talked about income, follow me. But up next are definitely some parables that I did connect with, and I'm very excited about those. This is from Luke 15. Heavenly Father rejoices when those who are lost are found. And it says, Have you ever wondered how Heavenly Father feels about those who have sinned or are otherwise lost? The Pharisees and scribes criticized Jesus for even associating with such people. And in response, Jesus told three parables found in Luke 15. This is the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. All right, so... How are these three things lost? That is the question. The first one, the sheep was just being a sheep. Like maybe he saw some grass and he thought that grass looks good. And he like wandered off and started eating the grass and the rest of the herd kind of wandered away. And he was like, uh, uh oh, <laughs> my, my friends are gone. I don't know where I am. And he just kind of kept eating grass, right? And David O. McKay has a really good quote about this that actually kind of expounds upon it. Um, he says, I desire to refer to the conditions that contributed to the sheep, the coin, and the prodigal son being lost. I ask you tonight, how did that sheep get lost? He was not rebellious. If you follow the comparison, the lamb was seeking its livelihood in a perfectly legitimate manner. But either stupidly, perhaps unconsciously, it followed the enticement of the field, the prospect of better grass until it got out beyond the fold and was lost. So we have those in the church, young men and young women who wander away from the fold in perfectly legitimate ways. They are seeking success, success in business, success in their professions, and before long they become disinterested in the church and finally disconnected from the fold. They have lost track of what true success really is, and perhaps stupidly, perhaps unconsciously, in some cases, perhaps willingly, they are blind to what constitutes true success. And then we move on to the case of the lost coin. The case of the lost coin. That sounds like a Nancy Drew novel. And we move on to the parable of the lost coin. Okay? And so this is the... <laughs> This is another parable I really connect with because I am constantly losing stuff, right? All the time. I lose stuff and we have to stop everything my family is doing and everyone has to stop and look for things. Like I literally would bribe my kid when I was little, be like, oh my gosh, I've lost my car keys. I will pay you $5 if you can find my car keys. And so, you know, he would tear apart the house and he was really good at finding stuff. Um, 
lost shoes. I can't even, glasses, like all the stuff that I've lost over the years. Like I'm just really bad at this. So I really feel for this poor woman when she has lost this coin. And, you know, I, I understand like she didn't mean to lose it. David O. McKay says, in the case of the lost coin, the thing lost was not in itself responsible. The one who had been trusted with that coin had, through carelessness or neglect, mislaid or dropped it. A lot of times, I, when I lose stuff, it's not through carelessness or neglect. I put it in a special place. A special place that I will remember where I put it, and I can never remember where that special place is. <laughs> So this is where like the stupidity and unconsciousness that he talks about and like, with the sheep and stuff, um, that's where it comes into play. But going back to David O. McKay, okay, through carelessness or neglect, mislaid it or dropped it. There is a difference. And this is the one third which I think applies to us tonight. Our charge is not only coins, but living souls of children, youth, and adults. They are our charges. Some of them may be wandering tonight because of the neglect of word teachers and leaders. Okay, and so in that case, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, that is, like, my neglect. And, you know, if kids are wandering away because of things that I haven't, like, I haven't paid attention to them, I haven't taught them the right things, then, yeah, that is my bad, and I need to work on that. Um, and so it made me really think of my primary kids. Like, what am I doing to bring them closer to the gospel, and what can I do in other ways to bring them closer to the gospel, and my primary teachers, and my primary workers, and how can I help them and serve them and help their lives become spiritually enriched, and it really made me think about that a lot this week as well. Then David O. McKay going back to the prodigal son, comparing it to the coin and the sheep. Here is the case of volition. Here is choice, deliberate choice to walk away. Here is in a way rebellion against authority. And what did he do? He spent his means in riotous living. He wasted his portion with harlots. That is the way they are lost. Youth who start out to indulge their appetites and passions are on a downward road to apostasy, as sure as the sun rises in the east. I do not confine it to youth. Any man or woman who starts out on that road of intemperance, of dissolute living, will separate himself or herself from the fold as inevitably as darkness follows the day. So that's David O. McKay in the conference report, April 1945. And so even though that was back from 1945, almost 100 years ago, it's still very applicable, I think, today. Um, and, you know, we talk about, sometimes in word council and different meetings that I've been in, we've talked about people who have left the church and the difference between a prodigal son and a lost sheep. Okay. And I know that you guys can see this, like when you have people who are no longer coming to church, you know, are they no longer coming to church because they kind of just saw some grass and got distracted and kind of like just wandered off? Or are they no longer coming to church because they are anti-church, they don't want anything to do with it, and they are of their own volition staying away? You know, and I, you know, I think my husband is definitely a prodigal son. Like, I think he definitely is in that, that category. But then I think of like, I think my son may be more of a lost sheep. And so how do we minister to those two? And, you know, the way that we minister to those two, I think is a little bit different. So these product, I like these parables a whole lot better because I connect a whole lot better with them in case you can't tell. 